came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. One great show. We have Commissioner Ray Kelly and what's going on in our city. Governor David Patterson, what's going on in our state? We're going to do a, between Eric Schuffler and the Staten Island Department of Transportation, a bicycle-thon. Then we have Bridget Brennan. She has 25 years where the district attorneys have nominated her to take care of all drug cases in New York City. Larry Kudlow. Robert Unanaway, what's going on with the prices of food worldwide? And let's start off with Michael Stoller and the real estate industry in New York. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. Local Law 97, emissions, legal actions, other controls, energy. That's the big topic of the world today. So today I have Brad Klatt, who is the chairman of Logical Buildings, also a partner at uh, Canoe Brook Development, a very active developer in New Jersey of residential housing. Brad, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. So Great as I said, what, what is Local Law 97 for the, for the people who have no, no idea of what? Local Law 97 is a New York City uh, set of regulations that follows from the original Bloomberg Local Law 84 and 87, and it effectively is there to first assess, second measure, and then third regulate the amount of energy that's used by buildings in the city that are greater than 25,000 square feet so that the utilities are capable of one appreciating, because this was before decarbonization was most important, appreciating how much power is being used, how much they're producing, and then how they could possibly, in an environment, Indian Point closing, create enough power to satiate the buildings that are being built. Now, January 1st, new regulations went into effect, right? Yes, with many years of notice, and they basically create a series or a pattern of energy reduction and therefore decarbonization across all of the buildings that are more than 25,000 feet. So what happens if you're a, a owner of a co-op or a condo? What, are you exempt or are you? No, co-op, co- all of the buildings except for uh, affordable housing and, and a few others that are brand new, um, that are following the city's great now mantra of electrification, all of the buildings are subject to. There are some things you can do, uh, depending on what type of building you are, to put that off to get a waiver on the basis of engineering or other capital improvements that you're thinking of doing, but all of the buildings are subject to it. First round of penalties for not 
reducing your energy or consuming too much per square foot um, are based upon your 2024 use. And then there, six years later, is another round, which is much more draconian. 20% of the buildings in the city will be subject to those penalties in 2024, but for waivers. But by 2030, 80% of those buildings will be subject to the penalties for not having reduced their energy consumption. So what does logical buildings do for a, for a landlord or a tenant? Um, logical buildings focus first for the system is to help the system measure the utilization of power and the potential for decarbonization. And then for the building owners, uh, whether they're condominium owners or whether they're actual, you know, uh, companies, public, private companies, um, office, residential, industrial. Um, we have software programs that measure the utilization of energy throughout the building and allow the owners of the buildings or the residents of an apartment to control the amount of energy that they're actually using and play a role in decarbonization and energy reduction. Now, to people who are the residents, they do that because they can get a rebate of up to 20% of their energy costs that are paid to Con Ed. But the building owners are subject to significant penalties for not having done that. So if you own a building, for example, we, you need to understand that these rules reply, apply to the entire lot and block. So if all the residents in the building who say use half the energy and the owner who uses half the energy, if the owner is parsimonious and follows our software and does all the th great things that they can do to reduce energy, but everybody in the building just you know, wants it freezing cold in the hot summer days and they want it um, you know, very warm when they're using gas in the, in the freezing cold winters, um, they will take the building over the top of these standards and subject the building to fines. We help measure every aspect of the consumption in the building so that each of the participants can understand what the possibilities are and then create patternization of utilization, as well as some engineering changes to the building to reduce the amount of energy and get them under the hurdle, get them to do more decarbonization uh, and effectively come into, let's call it the 20, you know. As, as a developer of, of recently of three major developments in New Jersey, how are you taking Local Law 97 into effect in the development phasing? Okay. Well, Local Law 97 doesn't apply in New Jersey. Although PSENG and the state of New Jersey have... But if just, you were building a, a no, building... Saying, they've, they've, they've announced that right. they're going to follow these standards. So I'll assume the question is with application. So I think uh, you've been a very interesting topic. I don't think anybody has been talking about Local Law 97 to the general public. The and engineers like are talking to the engineers and they're talking to the owners and the owners are talking to their investors. And we want them to know. And I'd like to thank Brad Clatt for being here and see you next week. Our pleasure. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is former Governor David Patterson. So many things are happening uh, uh, with the law, with the migrants, uh, with, with, with problems in the uh, crime system. Governor Patterson, you were governor. You know all the rules. You know all the things that a governor can do. And give us your estimation. Where, what the heck is going on in uh, 
uh, in New York and New York State. And give us your evaluation. Well, uh, there are a lot of legal courses and also writings on what they call conflict of laws, which are the differing laws between the states. And could theoretically, internationally, that is a problem as well. But we have a very unique case of this where a man uh, allegedly killed a woman in a Manhattan hotel. He then flees to the airport and goes to Arizona. In Arizona, he stabs another woman who survives um, in a carjacking. And then he stabs a third woman in a McDonald's restaurant. He's taken into custody in Arizona. At that point, New York uh, uh, Manhattan DA Robert Bragg moves for extradition to move him from Arizona back to New York. The local district attorney in uh, Arizona refused to do that, saying that this prisoner might get bail and could get out and hurt other people. So now the question is, um, whose law is uh, who has jurisdiction here? Who has, which law is superior? And the problem uh, usually is solved this way, that the jurisdiction where the higher crime was committed takes the uh, custody of the defendant. So uh, the DA in Arizona is going against that and not letting the um, individual get uh, out of jail in Arizona. Now, um, the New York district attorney is very upset and has spoken about this. The Arizona district attorney is saying that she's doing this in the, in the um, mind of public safety. But her jurisdiction is in Arizona, not in New York. So I would tend to think that um, New York would prevail in a legal case in, in, in this manner. Um, the uh, Bronx district attorney, I mean, I'm sorry, the uh, Arizona district attorney uh, certainly will get a lot of support in her own state for taking this position, but I don't think she can win that case. Wow, that is, that is an interesting case. Um... Isn't it? Well, can't 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 the uh, uh, Arizona district attorney say we're going to try the person here? Uh, when we're finished trying them, uh, we'll uh, lend them to uh, to to New York. But they have to, uh, no matter what happens in New York, they have to return them back to back to Arizona to serve his uh, sentence. Well, they could try to do that, but they might lose in federal court. Because the general rule is that the area that had the highest crime. So we have two stabbings that resulted in injury but not death, as opposed to a murder that took place in the hotel. So most of the time, the winner would be New York. But what makes this case complicated is that uh, the individual committed two crimes in Arizona and they certainly would want to have their opportunity to prosecute them. Yes, and in uh, both cases was really the, the 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 two people survived, but it was attempted murder. Yes, yes, um, but you know because they just don't want there to be states fighting with each other with no resolution. 
the general rule has been that the higher crime is tried in the place where it was committed. Understood. Uh, what else? Uh, what else would you like to this Sunday morning? What else would you like to discuss? What's what's on your mind at three o'clock in the morning? <laughs> well, fortunately, not as much as what used to be on my mind at three o'clock in the morning. But I would say this is a very interesting legislative session that's coming up, and it is, um, you know, that there is a, a lot of discussion about regions around around the state that aren't uh, getting the uh, funding that it would seem their population would deserve. And that's something that Governor Hochul wants to look into along with the legislators in Albany. But actually, um, for the first uh, couple of months, they'll probably end the, the, you know, the second month at the end of this week, there were, uh, it's been pretty quiet. But now the budget uh, looms. And how to close the budget is going to be uh, a conflict between the way the governor would want to do it and the way the legislature would. But I sense a calmness in the air in Albany and uh, a uh, willingness to work together on the part of the um, uh, executive branch and the two legislative branches. I would hope that uh, they work together. To, but the fact that I was always scared about is that they're spending money too fast and that so many people have moved, then that money might not be available as fast. Any gut feeling as the former governor? Well, um, the, the great amount of the taxes that are paid to New York state government are paid by the wealthiest New Yorkers. And it's a relatively low number of them that pay a relatively high percentage of the taxes that are actually paid. Um, many of these people are finding other ways. They're going to South Carolina, you know, where the, um, uh, you know, where the primary w- was just held yesterday, um, is a state that they were saying that the when they were interviewing people who were voting, a lot of them said, well, I don't know much about Governor Haley because I just moved in here like four or five years ago. And, um, you know, Florida is still gaining in population and states like New York are losing in population. When you lose in population, you're not going to have as many congressional representatives. And in addition, you're going to have the same spending, which is going to create a situation where you're starting to move into default, as we almost did in, in uh, 2008 and in uh, 1991. So fortunately, um, we were able to come to our senses at that particular time, and uh, hopefully, we'll be in a, um, in a in a in a place where we learn that a, a big state is just like a household: you spend too much, you owe too much. And then you have to make sacrifices. And hopefully we can avoid that. Well, Governor uh, David Patterson, thank you so much for your input. Uh, People uh, every Sunday appreciate it uh, because uh, you were there. You tell it the way it is, and you were there. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, John. The Cats Roundtable. What is today is Ray Kelly. Uh, Ray Kelly is famous in New York, the longest-serving NYPD commissioner uh, ever, 
and uh, also did so many things uh, for uh, America, for the world. Uh, he served in Haiti uh, under President Clinton uh, to try to straighten out that, uh, that, that country. Ray Kelly, I'm worried about New York. Tell me how you feel. John, it makes two of us. Uh, I met a man from uh, London a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him what did he thought of New York. He had been to New York before, and he said it looks like there's nobody in charge. And that's exactly my feeling. I think it sums it up. He talked about the, the migrants, seeing the migrants, particularly around a Roosevelt Hotel, homelessness, mentally deranged people, crime is way too high. Petty larceny, of course, the stores. He mentioned that, you know, how everything is locked up in the in the stores. We know that subway crime is still very much an issue, and it's keeping people off of the subway. It's still significantly below what it was pre-COVID. Just this morning, a man was shot and killed on the subway train in the city. That's the third one so far this year. People are afraid to go on the subway. They think that congestion pricing is going to force them on the subway. We're, we're going to see. So he, his was a pessimistic assessment, and unfortunately, so is mine. I, and I think the cops are working hard, quite frankly, but the police department is way short of police officers. It's been hemorrhaging police officers actually since the death of, of George Floyd. They can't recruit enough officers. People don't want to become a cop these days. They know the restrictions. They know the fact that the police officers have been demonized and, and vilified you know, really throughout the country, but certainly in, in New York as well. They see the assaults on police officers. You know, there's, there's no consequences to it. So it's a bad time. And, uh, you know, there's some, some a little bit of hope. Uh, murders are down, shootings are down, and that's obviously a, a good thing. But robberies and assaults and those sorts of things, and, of course, the quality of life in New York, has really deteriorated. Scooters are everywhere. They're on the sidewalks. They're going through red red lights. You have to look 360 degrees before you cross the street twice. And it's a, it's a dangerous undertaking. So, I'm, unfortunately, I'm pessimistic about the, uh, certainly the short-term situation as far as New York is concerned. You know, I, I walk around at night, uh, uh, and uh, uh, you were in Manhattan uh, for a long time. I'll, I'll tell you, sometimes after dark, I'm scared walking around at night, and a lot of people feel that way. And uh, last week, we interviewed the governor, and, and I'm glad that she uh, has now an apartment in in uh, Manhattan. And I said to her, well, governor, don't, don't believe what your people are telling you, that arrests are down and arrests are up. You know, talk to some of your constituents that are walking around on the east side. You're absolutely right. There's a feeling of anxiety all over. People feel unsafe. You can quote numbers, but that feeling is still very much there. You know, you have these demonstrations, too, these pro-Palestinian demonstrations that are close to being out of control oftentimes. And the city just agreed to a consent decree, which is absolutely ludicrous. It ties the hands of, of police officers trying to police uh, demonstrations. It puts in a, a six-person oversight uh, committee. It ends the practice of kettling, as it's called, which is a plaintiff's term, to sort of move demonstrators into a particular area if you want to arrest them. Now, I have no idea why they, they did that. The mayor 
said it was a bad idea, but he signed it anyway because the lawyers told him to do it. That's not leadership. That's not what you're supposed to do. But that's, that's where we are. That, that's where we are. It's just making it more difficult to be a police officer in New York. Probably the most difficult time it's ever been. I am worried, and I worry not necessarily about myself. I worry about my uh, uh, my my kids and uh, my wife uh, walking around. And, and I'll tell you the other thing that uh, uh, Governor Hochul has done that I did, did disagreed with. If if I'm walking up to, to go trying to go to a restaurant on the east side, and I have a carry permit, but if I'm going to a restaurant that serves liquor, and all of them do. I'm not allowed to carry my uh, my gun in the in the restaurant. I mean, what kind of? I mean, what what say you about that? It's a bad idea. Absolutely, it's a bad idea. People who have carry permits have been vetted, you know, have been trained. Uh, why not? Why shouldn't they be allowed to carry them in, into places where, you know, God forbid something something could happen? And, and uh, when, no, it makes and, no sense at all. And Ray, we can, we're not allowed to carry it in church where we want to protect our parishioners. If you remember, there was an incident in Texas a few years ago where a shooter came into a church and somebody who was on there was able to, to eliminate the, uh, the threat. So it, it is this, this phony effort of gun control, which makes no, no sense. Obviously, criminals are not going to obey that. It's only if a, a, a license-carrying individual is, is caught with a weapon that will they get a a summons or a fine. So, it, you know, it, it, it's silly stuff. Uh, we, we need vetted people who, who want to carry a, a weapon to, to be out there, to be on the street, and not, to, not just to be, you know, a victim to in any thug that, uh, that comes along. We don't want to see any indiscriminate shooting, and quite frankly, we don't. You don't see that from licensed gun holders. You know, they, 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 they talk about that as a threat. You know, I've been, I've been policing a long time. You never see that. You hardly see any incident where a licensed gun holder has, has somehow abused the, uh, yeah, in, you know, the authority that they have. So, yeah, it, it, you should be able to go where you want to go based on your training and the fact that you've been permitted. Yeah, oh, only 40 years, uh, Ray Kelly. Uh, yeah, right, right. 12 years you were commissioner, if not longer. I, I, anything else you want to get off your chest? Well, I think you know, the, the migrant situation, the $53 million going to migrants, which is only, by the way, a fee, a license fee, or being paid to the company that's going to distribute the money. There are estimates that this money going to migrants here could be over $2 billion from the city of New York. I mean, this is ludicrous. When are we going to say no? When is his mayor going to say enough is enough? I mean, he's so concerned about his political career. You know, these migrants should be ending up in uh, Delaware, <laughs> place like that. Uh, you know, when when are we going to come to our senses and, and, and take this problem? My, and, my uh, attitude. It's a national problem. Yes. It's a national yeah. problem that's been created by the federal government. And my attitude right. is we should feed and take care of the homeless veterans and the poor Americans before we worry about uh, the people from Africa or or South America. We should take care of them there, not necessarily here. 
Thank you, Ray Kelly, and thank Absolutely. you for and thank you for everything you've done for uh, New York. Thank you for everything you've done for America, and we'll catch up again real soon. Uh, uh, John, you're terrific. Thanks very much. Take care. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. Well, now we have a tidbit from Staten Island. So many things happening in Staten Island. The Ferry Hawks. Well, May 3rd, I understand. We have the grand opening weekend, and they'll be playing baseball. And with us today is uh, Eric Schuffler, uh, my part, and he gets the aggravation of running the, uh, <laughs> the, the stadium. And we have Rosanna Caru- Caruno, uh, who is the DOT commissioner for the borough of Staten Island. Tell our audience what's going on. So, John, we're very fortunate to have Roseanne with us. She's a great ally for the Ferry Hawks, great ally for the borough, you know, very community-focused. But before we turn over to Commissioner Caruano, opening day, May 3rd, John, and individual tickets are on sale. We have some great nights, fireworks on Saturday. It's on, it's on the website now? It's on the website. It is live. Give them the website. Ferryhawks.com, F-E-R-R-Y-H-A-W-K-S.com. We have some really great nights, Star Wars, Irish Heritage, Italian heritage, a lot of fun nights, and a lot of fireworks, and a lot of Nathan's hot dogs. So we're excited. I love those Nathan hot dogs. You know, when John, when, when you and I started this, we always talked about entertainment and success in Staten Island. And, you know, we are very community-focused and working with uh, the DOT commissioner. We do a bike drive to help underprivileged kids in the neighborhood. People donate their used bikes, and we help collect them at the stadium, Staten Island University Hospital Park. And working with Commissioner Caruano, she collects them and helps take them there. So, Roseanne, we wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your program. Thank you so much. I'm very, very excited. And thank you again to the Ferry Hawks for being such an incredible partner in this effort. So everyone that donates a bike gets two free tickets to a Ferry Hawks game. And our other partner is Bike New York. We're very fortunate because what they do with these bikes is they take them back to their facility in Brooklyn and they take the oldest, most broken down bikes, some without wheels, some without handlebars, and they refurbish them and they come back to us looking brand new. And this is an effort for us to give back to the community, to those folks that can't afford a bike and that have to get to work or to school, and they really have no other means of doing that. So now this bicycle will help them to get from uh, one place to another and, and give them a bit of quality of life. So last year was a great success. We had about 65 bikes, and we helped uh, many, many people in the community. We're working with NYPD, who's our other partner, and each of the four precincts on Staten Island, they are identifying the uh, recipients of these bicycles and people that really could use them in their community. And they're coming from either housing projects or from the various schools or just from families that know other folks that, that that, that, that need help. I'm with the city 37 years with this great agency, but this is one of my favorite projects of all time to do because seeing those faces last year when those people got those bikes was just uh, amazing. So I want to thank the Ferry Hawks. Eric, you've been such a great partner. And I just want to mention that we have drop-off locations. So for the next five Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., there are five drop-off locations. This, this Saturday we're doing Snug Harbor, 
Next Saturday, they'll be at your ballpark, the Staten Island University Hospital Ballpark. They'll be making collections there. On the 9th, it'll be the Great Kills Municipal Parking Lot. On the 16th, it'll be the Huguenot Parking Lot. And the last collection day on the 23rd will be at New Dorp Municipal Parking Lot. So it's from 9 to 3. So if you know anyone out there that have old bikes in their garage from their kids and they're not being used, please please go to one of the collection sites and, and donate your bike. And I got to say one one closing statement. I'm also chairman of the Police Athletic League, and we'd love to get some of our Police Athletic League kids from Staten Island involved. My wife, Margot, we always donate bicycles, but we're going to donate brand-new bicycles, and uh, we'll send them to the Ferry Hawk Stadium, and you work it out with Margot. Hopefully, uh, we, we have a great day for the kids. Excellent. Yes, the day that we give them back to the to the recipients will be sometime in May, which is Bike Month. And I hope to see you there, John, uh, along our partners with Eric and Bike New York and uh, all the, you know, Chief Galata and all the precincts. Uh, last year was a great show. So I hope to see you there. And, I will. And thank you for the bottom of my you. heart for those bikes. I will be there. WABC is community-minded. Staten Island is important to us. The Ferry Hawks are are community-minded. So we're going to put it all together. Police Athletic League, uh, Ferry Hawks, uh, WABC, the DOT. And and we're going to make everybody happy. We're going to make the kids happy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. The Cats Roundtable. We have a very special person on. We have Special Prosecutor Bridget Brennan. She has been appointed by the five district attorneys in New York City as a special prosecutor for drugs. Uh, Bridget Brennan, uh, explain to all New Yorkers what that means. Good morning, John. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a tough job. I've been head of the agency now for 25 years, and I came in after the crack epidemic. I'm appointed by the five elected DAs. And I've now had 16 different bosses, I think it is, since the time I've been in charge. We have uh, the jurisdiction or the opportunity to prosecute felony narcotics cases throughout New York City. That means in all five boroughs of New York City. Felony means you face a sentence of more than a year. And narcotics in New York means drugs like cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, the opioid prescription pills. And we can also prosecute any crime that's associated with those drugs. And so we have quite wide jurisdiction over the whole city. And because New York City is a hub for narcotics trafficking, we tend to do long-term investigations that really involve, uh, right now, drugs crossing over the southwest border and traveling across the U.S. So many people are dying. Over 100,000 Americans have died in the last 12 months from fentanyl, we even had uh, today, we even have uh, the first lady of Virginia who's out there right now because so many people are dying in Virginia. Do you work very closely with the federal people? Yes, we work very closely with the DEA. We partner with them on many cases, and we also work with other federal agencies, Homeland Security, Customs Border Enforcement, the FBI sometimes. And in addition, we work with the New York City Police Department. Is it getting better or is it just as bad? Well, right this minute, across the U.S., we're leveling out somewhat. The overdose deaths did not increase as much as they had in the past years. Uh, The information that came out most recently about the overdose deaths across the U.S. And so 
it's not getting worse or as bad as it has in previous years, but that's not much uh, encouragement. We want a lot more progress than that. Right now, the U.S. has the highest overdose death rate of any of the high-income countries across the world, and by a pretty large margin. Canada is next, and I think the issues in Canada are pretty much the same as in the U.S., and then Scotland is the next that has a high overdose rate, and their problems are attributable mostly to heroin. And their uh, death rate is a lot lower than it is in the U.S. and Canada. And so the U.S. is not doing well. We have to do a whole lot better. And we will do a whole lot better. We just have to find the right strategies to help us. And we have to move on it. We have to really marshal our efforts and uh, collaborate in order to bring this problem uh, under control. What are you more worried about? I guess the, the southern border you're more worried about than the Canadian border. Yes. I mean, historically, the drugs, and again, my vantage point is through the vantage point of New York City, but the drugs that we've been seizing, the large amounts, have been coming across the southwest border. And I think even now, although we've seen some indication of fentanyl production in Canada, there's been some reports of that. Right now, I don't believe that's our greatest source of fentanyl. And fentanyl is the drug that's killing more people than any other. We should be perfectly clear about that. That's what the problem right now is all about. It's fentanyl. Parents, when they look at their kids, is there any special thing that they'll give you a a bell going off that there may be something wrong? Well, I think if your child's behavior changes in a significant way, if they really are, their personal traits are altering, if they're just not behaving and acting the way they normally would, that's something a person, parents should definitely pay attention to. And they ought to have frank talks with their children before any problems ever happen about these drugs that are so available now. One of the biggest problems we see with young people is that the fentanyl drugs are sold in pill form. It's sold in many different forms, but the pills are sold uh, very accessible over social media. And these are pills that may appear to be something like Adderall or oxycodone or some uh, prescription pills that the children might have had access to in the past. But anything you buy outside of a pharmacy is very likely loaded with fentanyl. My office sees more than a million fentanyl pills in our investigations last year, and that's just a drop in the bucket, I'm sure, of what's available all over the country. So people need to be educated. They need to educate themselves. We need to educate our children. And our children need to be encouraged to be involved in things that will make them happy and engaged uh, so they won't be dabbling in things like risky behaviors like doing drugs. Special Prosecutor Bridget Brennan, thank you for everything you do to help all New Yorkers and all Americans. And and let's catch up again real soon. Thanks so much, John. Talk to you soon. This is the Catch Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. We have with us Larry Kudlow. Larry, almost the market is almost forty thousand. Yeah, so this week was um, Nvidia and the AI gold rush. That's the way I'll put it. Tremendous earnings and sales revenues from Nvidia, the chip company, which is the leading chip maker, plugging into 
the big uh, communications companies like Google and Facebook and so forth to get them to uh, artificial intelligence and applications. But, you know, it sprinkled gold dust over the entire market. And it's an important point, I think, that one, one almost overlooked is that the application of AI, which is really about quantum computing, it's about super, super fast computing. You can get all the information you need. You can plug into all kinds of machinations and uh, permutations and combinations. It's good for farming. It's good for manufacturing. Of course, it's good for media and communications. But it's the applications of AI that could, in the medium, longer term, you know, really rejuvenate the economy. Uh, and it's coming from the private sector. Nobody gave NVIDIA a lot of money. Uh, nobody gave these telecom companies a lot of money. It's private investment, but it's uh, American ingenuity and technology advance uh, at its best. And it sprinkled gold dust on the entire market, all the markets this week, up over 1% and hitting new record highs left and right. Any other comments on what's going on uh, with interest rates? I spoke to Robert Yunanaway, our friend from Goya Foods, and he'll be on this weekend uh, on, on the Cats Roundtable, that the price of food is not going down. Transportation costs are the highest ever. So food is not going down. And uh, gasoline, I don't know where we're going. I think uh, right now with the what's going on in the Gulf is not going down. And interest rates, it doesn't look like it's going down. Yeah, nope. gasoline, by the way, is perked up a little bit. It's back up to about three twenty-five nationwide. It was hovering around three. John, I want to help your cost of financing as much as I possibly can because I have pure love for you. But I don't think interest rates are going down. And market rates, put the Fed aside, market rates have actually gone up. The 10-year Treasury is now back up to about 430. And I don't see any evidence or any sign that anybody in the Federal Reserve wants to cut its target rate for many, many months. Now, how long? We'll see. But I think rates are going to stay where they are. I think inflation lingers on. And the economy, look, profits are very strong. Profits are the mother's milk of the stock market. And profits are the lifeblood of the economy. Businesses prosper when they're making money. And right now, they're making money. So bottom line, from from Katsimatidis and Kudlow is interest rates are not going down. Food prices are not going down. The stock market to the moon. Gasoline is up. I'm long the index, John. Right now, I look like a genius. I'm long the S&P index. Right now, I look like a genius. And I'm just hoping that, you know, Governor Patterson invests in the S&P index and holds it there forever. <laughs> Thank you, Larry Kudlow. Have a great weekend. And you're going to be Thanks, on everybody. every Saturday. Your, your, your picture is in the New York Post tomorrow, every Saturday between 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock. And Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. The Cats Roundtable. With us today is Robert Unanaway. He's the CEO of Goya Foods, a truly international food company. So many effects have been the cost of food, the cost of shipping, and I don't know anybody better that can give me some real answers. Bob Unanaway, good to hear from you. What's going on in food? Because prices are not going down. I've been telling people that uh, food executives are not sure which way interest rates are going, which way the, the world is going, which way the, the Red Sea is going, which way the Suez Canal. You tell us. Well, John, uh, thanks for having me again. You know, what's happening in agriculture and food around the world is there's many reasons. One is in the United States, we're losing 
four to 5,000 acres per day to development or incentives for farmers to take good fertile land and put solar panels and things like that over their land. Instead of on areas where it's not farmed, they can make more money by getting incentives for green energy than they can by farming. And this war on fossil fuel has affected, affected everything to do with food. Then you have the war in Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia had 50% of the world fertilizer, 2.5 million acres of sunflower for oil. In the United States, our, kind of our war with Europe, back in the day, President Trump put 25% taxes on olive oil from Spain, on different products. But besides that, the droughts, fires, and then floods have had an effect on crop production around the world. Today, we're seeing shortages in products like tomato, sugar, the other items. Olive oil is down besides these tariffs. They're also down in production because of droughts. Rice is also down. You have the biggest exporter in the world of rice, India, is not exporting because they have their elections. So then you have transportation because of the unrest, the Suez Canal, people have to go around the Horn of Africa. During COVID, freights went up tenfold. The freight companies, you know, made a lot of money because these freight rates went up 10 times. Now they're back down to about double or maybe three times a container from Thailand of coconut water would cost $1,800. It went up to 18000 Now it's around between 3000 and 4000 a container. So all these factors and more, you know, we're putting more land to use for this green energy, which I think, it, you know, you go to Palm Springs in California, they have miles and miles of dead windmills, and you can't get rid of them. They're an ecological hazard. Probably one of the best and cleanest energies is, nu- is nuclear. But we need fossil fuel. Gasoline and diesel and other products is only a fraction of the many, many products that come out of uh, our fossil fuels. I understand yep. also that the Panama Canal has had problems. The Panama Canal has a big problem with fresh water. They lift the boats. There's 10 feet of difference between the Pacific and the Atlantic. So as they go through Panama and the Panama Canal, they need fresh water to lift the boats in the locks. They don't have the water. You know, we have an issue with our water table around the world that also affects crops. So droughts, and then we have fires, and we have too much rain in certain areas. In a way, we are largely responsible for this. One is a war on fossil fuels in the United States. The other is the weakness around the globe, the pulling out of Afghanistan, the war within Ukraine. All these things, we are looking weaker and weaker every day. They're taking advantage of us. North Korea, Russia, China. We are in very difficult times, and our leadership has to change. This is a complete disaster. It's affecting every part of our lives, from food to all types of inflation. And, Bob Udanaway, the other thing is what I've been telling people, that the food executives are nervous about reducing prices because of the fact that different uh, problems arise every day. I mean, have you seen that in your business? Sure. Here's the thing. You know, prices went up mainly because of transportation, but also, uh, again, all these shortages of land. There's more people on the planet. There's, we're taking away land every day. And so the food pot, and then shortages, again, tomato, rice, sugar, because food increases. But what increased much more significantly was transportation, supply chain. 
Now that went up tenfold. It came down, but it's, it's back up to about two to three times where it was. So yes, okay, you know, let's say the transportation came down. People were forced to go up when the transportation was tenfold, come back down, but then food is increasing at the same time. We're in this for the long haul. Again, more land put to development and green energy, which is in, in areas where we have good farmland, it's not profitable for the farmer to make pennies on his land when they can get dollars for taking their land and putting it in green energy, solar panels and the like. It's destroying our economy. It's destroying this world. We cannot just change overnight and expect everything to be fine. We need better stability in the world. And I think if we have better stability and not all the wars that are going on right now between Hamas and the Houthis and, and now ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda is active again. When you have a stable world, I think food prices will stabilize at that point. I believe everybody's waiting to see what happens in November to try to have a stable world. Yes, that stability absolutely is, is in the leadership. We're showing so much weakness. You know, we had Iran, for example, who's developing the nuclear weapon, and they were broke. President Trump had them back down, and they were ready to call uncle. Then we come in, we have incredible weakness. We throw them all this money, and with the money we're throwing them, they're killing Jews, they're killing our people. They're, it's evil, and the only way to battle that is with strength and, of course, to, to love our neighbor. If you don't have a strong world, a strong country, we're not going to be able to be there to help anybody, not even ourselves. Now, uh, Bob, Bobby Nanaway, there was another controversy in our uh, studio last week. The controversy was olive oil. A lot of facts are coming through that a lot of olive oil sold in the United States is not 100% olive oil and, and people are buying mislabeled or whatever, and people are concerned. What say you, Robert Yunanowet? Well, you know, it's it's not all extra. It's not all olive oil unless it's extra virgin. The uh, marketing people in Spain said oh, you can use the word pure. If it says pure oil, it can have five percent olive oil, ten percent, fifteen percent, but it's a blend of different vegetable oils, whether it's cottonseed, soy, sunflower seed, and other types of vegetable oils. Now. Olive oil is the highest in monounsaturated fat. It's got it's anti-inflammatory and it's it's very healthy. The vegetable oils are higher in the, the polyunsaturated fats and they're inflammatory. But again, a couple reasons that you're probably seeing this is the high high cost of olive oil. We have tariffs in the United States of 25% put on olive oil coming in from Spain and another country, well mainly Spain because of the battle with Boeing and, and all this other stuff uh, that we had a few years ago. But the olive oil is very expensive. It, we've had short crops. Again, if it's called pure, it just cheapens the product. It's just too expensive. And unless, again, unless it says extra virgin olive oil, is not 100%. It's very difficult to determine if a product, what percentage it has of olive oil and the like. So you really have to go with like you're saying, with the brand that, you know, if it says extra virgin olive oil and it's a brand you trust, then it's, it's going to be 100% olive oil. Robert Unanaway, thank you. Keep making great products. And uh, thank you so much. And we'll catch up again real soon. We love you all. And God bless and uh, the best. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, John. 
The Cats Roundtable. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to wabcradio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segment. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.